Hi, I'm Pastor Lori Boucher, and I want to personally welcome you to the HeartStrong Discipleship Podcast. Are you ready to study the Bible together chapter by chapter? If you go to heartstrong.life and sign up for a free membership, you will get access to the full Bible reading plan and all the bonus discipleship content that we have prepared for you. Open up your Bible and get ready to take some notes because God is going to speak to you today. Let's become heartstrong disciples together through the study of God's Word. Thank you so much. You're here. We're here. The Lord's here. And how many of you know that before we woke up this morning, the Lord was waiting for us? <laughs> and that while we were sleeping last night, that the Lord was working on our behalf in ways that we don't even know. And so um, let's just wake up and just, you know, give thanks to the Lord for a new day and just make our commitment to him this morning that we want to make this day just a uh, the best day we possibly can because it's a, every day is a gift from the Lord. And so let me just begin by uh, opening up with a word of prayer and then we will uh, we'll jump in. So Lord, we just wake up this morning, Lord, and many of us are tired. It's the end of a, another wonderful week, Lord. And and God, I, I think it's a good tired, Lord. It's a, it's, a, it's a fatigue of labor, Lord. It's a fatigue of, of our love for one another and our love for you, Lord. Uh, but Lord, we, know, we rest knowing that you are going to renew us, Lord. You are going to refresh us. And so, Lord, we do not, you know, we do not grow weary of doing good, Lord. But we come into this place, Lord, and we just ask you, Lord, just renew our hearts, Lord. Renew our spirits, uh, so that we can, you know, come into the day and leave with just fresh revelation of who you are, or Lord, just remind us, Lord, remind us of your nature, remind us, Lord, of your goodness and your holiness, so that we might walk in your ways, Lord. Um, that is our heart's cry, Lord, and that is what this is all about, Lord, help us to walk in your ways. We just bless your name, Lord, in your name, amen. Amen. All right, well, let me just uh, again remind us that we are going through one memory verse in the month of June, and that's 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 to 20. So I hope you are getting close to having this memorized now that we're over halfway through the month. Believe it or not, it's been over halfway through June. Crazy. Uh, but it reads, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You know, that verse really does capture the, the heart of uh, Leviticus, doesn't it? That you are not your own, that you were bought with a price. So let's glorify God. Let's honor God in our bodies. So let's continue. We're going to be today in Leviticus. We're going to, I'm trying to really stay um, and not jump forward too much. So to finish up where we were, we're, we're going to be reading in the second half of Leviticus uh, so Leviticus chapter six, verses eight, and then we're going to, and I'm in terms of my teaching, just tracking to the end of Leviticus seven. And uh, my goal is at some point in the month to be able to return and sort of point back uh, on Leviticus eight at some point later on uh, so that we can just cover as much of, you know, uh, the, the readings as possible that you've been reading throughout the week. Uh, but I want you to know next week, we have a really exciting uh, group of teachers for you uh, that you're really, really going to, to like. We have uh, Anita Rajesh, 
and we have um, Daryl Banks is going to be uh, next week along with Pastor Lori. So uh, I think you're going to enjoy them very much. All right, so today we're going to be talking a little bit about um, handling holy things. And we see, we're going to see that uh, our text this morning is going to be a bit repetitive and almost like it's um, looking back on some of the things that we've talked about. So some of the things that I will talk about this morning may be uh, something I've said before and may be repetitive in nature, but it's good to reinforce these things. And so, you know, so we're going to be talking about you know, handling holy things, specifically instructions for the priests on handling holy things, such as holy fires, uh, handling the holy blood, and then as well, handling the holy grain offerings, or as I'll say, handling holy communion. So holy fires, holy blood, and holy communion. And we as uh, New Testament Christians, you know, we are rooted in the, in the knowledge that with the coming of Jesus who inaugurated the kingdom of God, the meaning of what is holy has changed from the external to the internal of the life of the believer. Yesterday, I, I jokingly mentioned about, um, you know, the sanctuary being designated as a, a holy place symbol, symbolically. Well, there's nothing very specific about that physical location that makes that room holy and then the foyer not holy. Um, we do this sort of thing as, as humans. You know, we designate certain places as holy or certain things as holy. You know, growing up, my favorite time of church by far was after service. And as a kid, I grew up um, in my younger years at Community Pentecostal in Orleans. And there was a great crew of kids there and we would just run around with all of our friends. And one of my favorite things as a pastor now is seeing the kids um, run around after service and just kind of, you know, rip the place apart because it just signifies life. It just signifies kids uh, feeling at home at church. Um, but at that time, this was uh, early nineties, uh, running around in the, in the church was a sign of disrespect. And especially it was forbidden for us to run in the sanctuary because the sanctuary was a different place than the rest of the church. And we as kids, you know, we didn't know better. Um, and so we continued to run around in the uh, sanctuary playing tag. And us kids running around in the sanctuary prompted a very special meeting by the elders to deal with this issue to, and to say, what are we going to do with the kids who are running around in the sanctuary. And so it was settled that on Sunday mornings, they would open the gym up after church, uh, which was previously not allowed. The gym was okay. We would run in the gym, but not in the sanctuary. You know, another example, um, I also, my family had a trailer at OVPC at Ottawa Valley Pentecostal camp. And I got to spend every summer there as a kid and loved every second of it. But one time, for those of you who are familiar with OVPC, uh, the place where the services are held are called the Tabernacle. And then it's the name designated for that place. And one time I wore my hat into the Tabernacle and one of the adults in the room, who I did not know or have a relationship with, saw me wearing a hat and went over and ripped the hat off my head. And I tried to grab that hat back, but she wouldn't give it back to me. And she uh, stuffed it down her shirt. And as a 10-year-old, for me, the hat was ruined. 
And when I finally got it back days later, I threw the hat in the trash. I said, the hat has to be discarded. I could never, and it was my favorite hat and I was so sad. <laughs> uh, but I'm sure many of you, if you grew up in the church, you have examples of this, this tendency that we all have to want to designate some places common and some are holy. Um, but, you know, the heart of our teaching today is to remember um, that while in the Old Testament, there were certainly places and God had designated certain areas as being holy, uh, as New Testament believers, we are reminded of one of the foundational um, teachings of Jesus in Matthew chapter 15, verse 11, uh, which it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but it's what comes out of the mouth. You know, this defiles a person. And it really comes back to the uh, really the heart of all of Leviticus that we are not get focused up in the externalities of all this is that we are to remain focused that all of this was designed to you know change the heart of the worshiper in in Israel, um, and so we'll discover that the instruction on handling holy things in ancient Israel it does have a relevant message for us whose lives are devoted to the Lord as as, as His holy people today. You know, we should take away from this text that holiness cannot be reduced to a set of moral values. But Christian holiness is an encompassing commitment of one's life to the service of the Lord. So our passages today are going to teach us about what is genuinely holy and will encourage us to live a life of purity in our moral life and deep devotion to God. As well, um, when we close today, uh, our teaching time, one of the questions I just want to ask, just sort of looking ahead is, uh, um, as a, as a, and I would love to hear from some of those who maybe haven't shared uh, this week. Just to love to see your, your faces and hear your voices. But uh, my question is going to be what, as, and this is, especially if you are newer to Leviticus or maybe reading it for the first time, or maybe it's a book that you were a little bit worried, you know, in uh, previously to uh, open up, but what's something that surprised you? What's surprised you the most about uh, this week and what we've learned so far in Leviticus? And, you know, in, in the same sort of vein of that question, the question I want you to respond later on is, um, What's one preconceived notion that you had of the Vicus that maybe has changed this week? So that's just looking ahead. would love to hear your thoughts on those questions. So the priests had a, a daily responsibility of maintaining the altar's holy fires and ensuring that a lamb was offered uh, as a whole burnt offering each morning. And this offering was called in the Jewish tradition the tamid, which is a Hebrew word that means regularly. And so this offering was coupled with grain and drink offerings, which provided to the Lord a pleasing aroma. And so the fact that it, it was pleasing to the Lord indicates that is a, an indication that the Lord has accepted the offerings. So again, remember, whenever you see the term a pleasing aroma, uh, that is, means God has accepted their gift. God has accepted their sacrifice. So the perpetual burning of the altar's fires symbolized the perpetual need of sacrifice if the people were to enjoy the continued presence of the holy God in their midst. So this fire was to burn perpetually. You know, in Ottawa, we have the centennial flame at the prominent buildings, which is never supposed to burn out. 
Although I did a little research on this and that it does periodically need to be put out from time to time for maintenance and whatnot. But these fires on Israel's altar were to be perpetual and never ending because they had a greater symbolism. Um, their symbolism was to signify the never ending worship of the living God who has symbolically taken up residence in the tents of meeting among his people. So these fires burned perpetually and they would you know, look upon the fires and be reminded that their worship was to be perpetual, never ending. And so again, the burnt offering was burnt up to indicate that the people were to be wholly devoted to the Lord. And even the residue ashes of the sacrifice were considered holy because they too were offered to the Lord. So we see something new here in uh, Leviticus 6, that uh, the priests had to dress up very specifically for this task by putting on white under and outer garments. His full appearance in white conveyed the purity of God and, that, and the offering that was being presented to him. So once the priest had changed back, though, into his normal priestly clothes, what the priest would then do is transport the ashes outside the community, and he would, designate, he would deposit the ashes in a place uh, we see in verse 11, designated a clean place. All these details, you know, were a reminder that God, the worship of God was not a casual matter to be treated carelessly. You know, the psalmist says in Psalm 33, verse 3, you know, uh, when you sing a, a new, uh, when you sing to the Lord a new song, play skillfully on the strings. You know, do everything you do to the best of your ability and do nothing in, in with, as ca with casual and sort of, um, you know, like hearts that are restrained. But when you do something to the Lord, do it with all your might. Do it with all of your strength. Do it with all of your heart. And as well, the fact that the sacrifice had to be made daily was another reminder of that the permanent solution to human sin and impurity was needed. So by this daily sacrifice, there was a purpose to it. It needed to indicate to the people that this present arrangement, this sacrificial system, this law was only temporary and that a final deliverance for their sin was yet to come. So even from the very beginning, God, had a, God designed his law and he designed this system of worship in such a way that they were to be constantly aware that this was not permanent. This was not the final solution. Um, yet we know that 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 will, you know, be lost on their minds as, as the nation progresses. Um, so this is, of course, but we know that, you know, this permanent, you know, and final solution that the Lord had for the sins of the people. Again, and this is what we've been really driving home all week is the perfect sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ, whose death on the cross resulted in the complete removal of our sins. And it was a final solution to our guilt. Hebrews 10, 11 to 14 reads, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Isn't that amazing? They, they stand daily, offering daily, repeatedly the same sacrifices, but they can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for the, from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. 
So that's Hebrews 10, 11 to 14. So next to the burnt offerings, the grain offerings were the most common gift presented to the Israelites. Or sorry, by the Israelites. So these grain offerings usually accompanied burnt offerings to provide meat and bread at the sanctuary. So uh, if you remember earlier in the week, we talked about how this gift of a baked or cooked product was expressing the worshippers' thanksgiving to the Lord uh, for supplying a person's physical needs. And it is to remind us of the Lord's prayer that when we pray, give us this day our daily bread. And our passage in verse 17 refers to the grain offerings as God's food offerings most holy. You know, have you ever heard uh, when someone is speaking of a dessert, maybe a, a cake, and they speak of it as being simply divine? <laughs> that, that dessert was simply divine. You know, this, these foods were most holy. And in verse 17, you know, the word food offerings uh, is used. But we need to remember that unlike other antiquated nations, they believe, like these other nations, they believe their offerings were feeding the gods. But none of these food offerings had any sort of benefit to God. You know, it was not feeding God. It was not benefiting God. Um, God was not profiting by these sacrifices. You know, Psalm 50 verse 12 says this, if I were hungry, this is the Lord speaking, if I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world and its fullness are mine. It's, it reminds me of Jesus, who when the disciples encouraged him to eat, and he said, I have food that you have no clue about. That's nourishing me. You have no idea what sort of food that I have to eat. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. God's not dependent upon man for food, but it's man and it's, it's us people. We are dependent upon God aren't we? So when we, we read the food offerings and uh, we are to understand it as these food offerings were less about trying to appease God and they were more like communing with God, communing, fellowshipping. You know, the priests, the fact that they would eat the grain offerings, this was uh, signifying to the worshiper that your gift and you, the worshiper, had been accepted by God. So when you saw the priest bite into that bread, it was said, God has accepted me. God has accepted my gifts. And since the priest ate a portion of the offering, the instruction on the when, the what, the where were crucial. We know we see that the remaining flour belonged to the priests as a stipend for their service. And only in that specific holy area could they consume the bread. Verse 18 says, whatever touches the food offerings shall become holy. This meant that the holy bread symbolically communicated holiness to whoever, to whoever ate the bread. And, you know, the priests, the, fa the fact that they benefited from these grain offerings, uh, we, we talked about this earlier in the week, but I didn't um, reflect on it too much. But it does reflect to us a very important principle in the scriptures. And that is the priests received their primary source of sustenance through the grain offerings. You know, these priests, because they were consecrated to the Lord for service, uh, they did not get to own land in the way that the other people of Israel got to own land. So they couldn't produce their own harvest. They couldn't support their own livelihood. 
they were very much dependent upon the gifts of the people that were being presented to God for their daily sustenance. And so by receiving uh, a major portion of the offering to nourish their bodies, they could give their full attention to the work of the Lord. So the people helped nourish their strength. And as a result, their strength resulted in the priests being able to give their full attention. They were not distracted. They were not weak. They were not tired. They were fully nourished. And as a result, could give their best to the Lord. First Corinthians chapter nine, verse 13 to 14 reads, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. You know, the congregation would provide for the physical needs of the priest, and in return, the priest would provide for the spiritual needs of the people. And so a wise congregation will want to provide, you know, sufficient income for the so that the pastor can attend to the caring souls and is not diverted by the financial state of his or her family. And I just want to say praise the Lord that, you know, Life Center is such a wonderful church and is so blessing to the pastor. So I just want to celebrate that. Um, but, you know, that doesn't mean that the minister had no obligation to give of his resources. So the priest actually, he too had an obligation to give to the Lord. And so verse 19 to 23, you know, we're not going to get into it, but the it will illustrate uh, in the instructions given there regarding, you know, the installation service of the new high priest into office and, and how the priest was, you know, required to offer to the Lord. But again, the fact that the offering could not be eaten by the worshiper, again, was symbolic that they're not to benefit in any way from their own offering, that their offering belonged completely to the Lord. So we've talked about, you know, handling holy, holy fires, We've talked about handling holy food. And now, uh, finally, let's talk a bit about handling the holy blood in verse 24 of chapter 6 to uh, chapter 7, verse 10. So since the offerings typically included the slaughter of animals, the excess of blood had to be dealt with. Why the blood? Well, the blood represented the life force of an animal. And since the animal now belonged to the Lord, the priests had to be very careful in honoring the victim's life. Now, the proper handling of the blood evidenced the priest's recognition that God, he is the giver of life. And the fact that he has demanded the death of a sacrifice and that he has demanded the death of a, the sacrifice to make atonement for the sin of the guilty person. And so the sin and the guilt offerings have more in common with one another than any of the other offerings. You know, chapter seven, verse seven says that the guilt offering is just like the sin offering. There is one law for them. And so these were the instructions given for the sin and guilt offerings. And so we can comment on them together. Uh, again, some of this is going to be repetitive, but the fat and the entrails of the animal had to be burned up on the altar. The meat had to be prepared in a clean place in the courtyard. The victim's blood the animal's blood had to be caught in a receptacle for proper removal. And if the blood was splattered on a garment, it had to be washed in a holy place, which was the courtyard of the tabernacle. You know, the sacredness of sacrificial blood, animal's blood, is paramount in the teaching of the Old Testament. 
And later on, Peter would reflect on the special attention that the Israelites gave to innocent blood when he spoke of Jesus' sacrifice. 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, 18 to 19 says this, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spots. So what payment of sin can be offered to buy forgiveness? Well, it's not silver or gold, but our salvation is achieved by the unique offering of the blood of Jesus Christ. So here's what it says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 to 31. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he, has, by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into, into the hands of a living God. So can there be any more, you know, and I'll just say this in closing, can there be any more of a serious and perverse crime in the eyes of God than despising or blaspheming the blood of his only begotten son? Um, so I think I want to stop there. You know, there are a few more instructions in verse 11 to 38 that talk about the handling of um, the uh, peace offerings. And uh, we, we see, you know, the, if you remember, the peace offerings were expressing communion between the worshiper and God. And uh, just, you know, this peace offering, remember, it was a, a celebratory feast. It was a, a feast shared with you and the priests and all of your guests uh, that you had this joyful fellowship with the Lord. And I just want to make mention that, uh, you know, there were a few reasons why you would uh, make these sort of offerings. And it speaks of three offerings. I said I was done, but I guess I'm always long-winded. There were three uh, different types of peace offerings. There was the thank offering, the thanksgiving offering in verse 11 to 15. Um, there was, and then there was the vow offering and the freewill offering. So, um, you know, when you would make these offerings, uh, there were reasons for doing so. So you would make a vow offering um, in celebration of the completion of a vow made by the worshiper. And often you would make a vow uh, in regards to the context of a prayer request. So you would make a request to the Lord and you would, you know, as a sign of your dedication and love and worship and trust in God, uh, you would make a vow. So I'm going to vow, I vow to do this, Lord, would you help me? And I will vow to do this. Uh, I'm sure we've all been in that place before where we're like, God, you know, if you come through, I will do this. I promise you, you know, we make a vow. But how many times do we follow through on that vow? You know, the Israelites were determined to follow through. And as a result of following through on their vow, they would make a sacrifice, so an offering. Um, and then uh, 
and then so so oftentimes this these vow and the free will offerings were made in celebration or thanksgiving or just as a free will offering of their heart to the lord uh, but i just want to you know stop there for today and i would like to give attention to those and and ask that question again that i asked earlier you know if you haven't you know if you're somebody who hasn't said too much this week i just would love to hear from you and my question to you is what has surprised you the most about the book of Levitic leviticus in your readings uh, what has surprised you the most and then you know number two what is a preconceived notion that you had about leviticus maybe that has now changed or maybe something you you thought of this book going into it and maybe now you think a little bit differently uh, but for those of you who are going to jump off our call thanks so much for being here uh, today and this week and bless you as you go Thank you for joining us for today's Bible study. Don't forget to visit heartstrong.life to access our daily blog for even more encouragement. Visit the Heartstrong shop with all kinds of awesome merch like hoodies, t-shirts, and mugs to remind you of this awesome journey of discipleship that you are on. Log in to heartstrong.life to access all your member content, resources, and downloads. We have live Bible studies for adults, students, and a Bible bootcamp for kids. Let's become heartstrong disciples together.